Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. My name is Lucas Weeks. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to open up this passage this morning. Uh, But before I do, I'm going to read it, all of it. There's a lot. Um, So first, the setting. This uh, story occurs a few years after the crucifixion of Jesus, and the setting is Jerusalem, where Jews from all over the world had come to worship at the temple. As we heard last week, Stephen uh, was a disciple of Jesus Christ and had just been made a deacon. Uh, He was a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, and it said that he had been speaking with the Jews and even doing miracles. And he upset a number of the Jews who had traveled uh, from other places to worship at the temple, so they brought him before a tribunal, uh, the, the religious tribunal, and they brought charges against him. So the scene is of a court, right? That We hear charges against him, and then most of uh, chapter 7 is his defense against those charges. And of course, it ends with his execution by stoning. So, before, before we get into the preaching, though, I'm going to read the passage, and I want us all to listen carefully, and I want especially you kids to listen. Jerome, are you listening? I see you back there. All right. <clears throat> listen up. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. 
And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the, God of ja- I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into, the, into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Phew, did you make it? You still with me? Good. I tried with my voice as I read that to communicate something of the crackling tension and the fire of this event. It's a repeat of the trial of Jesus. And once again, a man's life hangs in the balance. And what would you do if you were in that situation, knowing that you, things maybe won't go well for you and you might die? Well, Stephen starts with a history lesson. What's that about? Stephen is actually traveling a very well-worn path here. He's about to make a declaration of faith, the kind of uh, here I stand, I can do no others type of thing. 
Uh, but he begins by recounting the great things that God has done for, for his people in the past. God's work is done in history. God, let, God led real people out of a real place with real results that they could taste and see. God works through history, and his work in history did not stop in the Old Testament. He was at work in the book of Acts, and he is at work now. And so as we begin today, I think that this is a very important message that Stephen is trying to get across to those who are listening to him. He's trying to get the Jews to take their eyes off of the temple, off of the land, and turn their eyes to Jesus Christ to see what Jesus is doing right now, right at that moment. And what does that have to do with us today? Do you believe that God is working in His church here in Bloomington in 2022? Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You may not part the Red Sea, or speak to the Lord in a burning bush, but God has work for you to do. Will you be available for that work? Let me ask it a different way. How is God's power and grace and glory shown in your life? Or did God mess up when the story came to you? Nothing. Nothing is happening in my life. In fact, everything's wrong. God must not be there. Is that your attitude? God works in history and he continues to work today. Today. This is Stephen's initial point, I believe. The power and the glory of this story will be lost on us if we think that God was working back then, but not now. Stephen puts his defense in the context of God's work of deliverance through history Because he's saying that God is doing that work right now. And so let's look at this narrative and ask ourselves, what's this all about? What's this all about? It was interesting to read commentators uh, on this uh, because they pointed out that many have read this passage and don't see the connection between the history and and the final message, intense message at the end. And, um, you know, Stephen has been accused of basically just babbling initially before he gets to his eventual execution. And of course, that's, the whole idea is ridiculous on the face of it. A crowd does not rise up in anger in a single impulse to put a man to death if he's just kind of babbling, right? You might laugh at a guy that does that, but you're not going to kill him. You're not going to respond that way. The people understood the connection between the beginning and the end of his sermon. So what is this point? What is he driving at the whole, the whole way? Well, remember the context. The Jews who had come from a long way to worship in Jerusalem had gotten into a conflict with Stephen. Stephen himself was a Greek-speaking Jew, and so it's very possible that uh, some of the people that were accusing him were his people. It's not clear from the text, but it's possible. These are people who had gone to a lot of trouble and expense and bother to travel to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. 
They weren't from Jerusalem, so they didn't take any of it for granted. You know, if you live someplace, you start to take it for granted. If you live in Colorado, you start to take the mountains for granted, right? They didn't take any of it for granted. The center of their religious life was the promised land and the temple where, the, where they offered sacrifices and the law of Moses, and here they were in the city of Jerusalem. And keep in mind that at that time, the temple was truly a wonder of the world. It was a magnificent achievement, and it rivaled any temple anywhere else in the world. The, the temple, of course, was very old. It had been built. It was the second temple. It had been built hundreds of years before, but Herod... Uh, the man who was ruling uh, at the time of Jesus' birth had built it up, right? He had added to it and built it up, and, and it was truly an amazing thing. The Talmud even records, he who has not seen Herod's building has never in his life seen a truly grand building. So it was legitimately a big deal. And so as we begin today, what, were the, what, were the, what was the accusation of these devout Jews against Stephen? It says in the end of chapter 6, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now, if you're going to make accusations and you, and you wanted them to stick, it's good to throw in a little bit of truth, right, with anything that's not quite true. And so that's exactly what they do here. Uh, there's truth to these accusations. Jesus did prophesy that the temple would be destroyed. He said that there would be not one stone left upon another. Jesus himself was trying repeatedly to get his people, his disciples, to take their eyes off of the temple and off of the sacrifices, and he was trying to get them to see that all of it, all of those things, the land, the temple, the sacrifices, the law of Moses, all of it was pointing to him. And Jesus, or, and Stephen, is trying to repeat that same message. Let's, let's look at how. The first half of chapter 7 is about God calling Abraham and his descendants out of their land and into the promised land. But even when Abraham was in the land, he didn't own any of it. He still lived like a foreigner in the promised land. <clears throat> Stephen goes on to tell the story of Joseph. Uh, you, you, you remember this story. His brothers were jealous of him, and rather than murder him outright, they sold him into slavery, into Egypt. Through that humiliation and trial, Joseph became a savior to his people, and God rescued Jacob and his sons by bringing them out of the land. God delivered them, not in the promised land, but in a foreign country. Jesus go, or Stephen goes on to tell how they remained in Egypt until God raised up Moses to give them the law and to lead them back to the promised land. Something very interesting happens, though, at this point in the story. Because an angel appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush out in the, out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. And he says something very interesting. He says, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. 
It's interesting because it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no, you know, we don't, we don't really know where that is. And, and so it is God who is the one who makes the ground holy. It is God who makes the ground holy. It's not holy. Ground isn't holy because we decide to put a church or a temple there. It's not holy because of its natural beauty. You know, many of us have been, you've been out to the amazing parks, the amazing nature in this country. And it's very easy to think that it's holy because of the grandeur of it. You know, we stand back in awe of the grandeur of some of the, the things in this country. And it's amazing. And we're tempted to think that it's holy because of its natural beauty. But it's not. It's not holy because of that. It's not holy because it's the promised land. Even, even if God promised the people that He would put them in that place, it's not holy because, because of that. It's only holy because of, if God is there. It's only holy if God is there. There are glorious churches and cathedrals all over Europe. And so what? And so what? They are museums. God is not there. And just like I've just now dismissed the cathedrals in Europe, Stephen is very dismissive about the temple. Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And in AD 70, that is exactly what happened. The Romans came and completely annihilated it, totally destroyed it. Jesus was trying to get his disciples to see that something greater than the temple had arrived. He had arrived. God had been with the people of Israel even while they were in the tents, in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. The temple is not the thing. The whole earth belongs to God. It is the presence of God that matters. Now, is there a child here who's less than 12 years old that can tell me what the word Ichabod means? Ichabod. Yeah? Without honor? Uh, that's close. Not quite. Who can tell me what Ichabod means? Yeah? Nope? Anyone older than 12? <laughs> yeah? Oh, were you here the first service? No, okay, all right. The glory has departed. The glory has departed. If God is not there, the glory has departed. Okay? To this day, Jews and Muslims fight over possession of their most holy sites. Right? There's a mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque, in the old city of Jerusalem, which is built in a very special place. It's built on top of something called the foundation stone or the noble rock. And it holds very special significance for Muslims. But it's also situated right where the Jewish temple used to be. And modern day Jews believe it's where the Holy of Holies was located. And so it holds very special significance for the Jews as well. And this, this for thousands of years, right? But all of this is to make an idol out of the land. And Christians do it too. We must be careful not to make an idol out of all of this. Of course, we love our homes. Maybe you have a farm and you love that. These are gifts from God, but they need to be held lightly. This building needs to be held lightly. 
The question is, the important question is, is God in this place? Is God in your home? Jesus said that where two or three are gathered in His name, His Spirit would be present. And what else do you need? What else do you need? Way back in Isaiah, God declares, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house will you build for me? God is not impressed by our buildings, our achievements, our land. Is God present where you meet, or has the glory departed? Now, throughout Stephen's account, he repeatedly points to how God raises up a Savior for the people at various times. Despite the jealousy of his brothers, God raised up Joseph to rescue the people from a terrible famine. But Stephen spends most of his time talking about how God raised up Moses to lead the people out of captivity into the promised land. God raised up Moses, but the people rejected him. Stephen says of Moses, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Stephen's listeners did not miss the point. Stephen is drawing a parallel between Moses and Jesus. Their fathers rejected Moses back then, and they now have rejected Jesus. Though they celebrate Moses today, they now reject the one who Moses spoke about. Why was this so difficult for them to see? Well, if you have a heartbeat, if you're alive and breathing, the real question that you should ask yourself is, why is it so difficult for us to see it? And I think the answer has to do with weakness and strength. And what do I mean by this? The deliverance that God brought through Joseph, Moses, Jesus, were they demonstrations of strength and power or weakness and failure? Was Moses, the man who never actually entered the promised land, was he a success or a failure? Was Jesus a success or a failure? And what about Stephen himself? You feel like it's a trick question? I think the problem here is that we don't trust God with our weakness and humiliation. We don't believe God's power is actually demonstrated in our weakness. We don't believe that our own humiliation is for our good and the good of others. What Stephen was trying to get them to see is the same thing that we struggle to see. Salvation comes from God. It does not come from us. God is the one who has to reach down and rescue us. It is He who does something for us. God is the deliverer. You would think that this would be easy for us to admit, but it's, it's, it is not easy for us to admit. And the reason is because it's humiliating every step of the way. From the youngest child to the oldest man, it's humiliating. And why is it humiliating? Because it, it requires confession of our sins. It requires seeing ourselves as the law actually diagnoses us, truly, for who we really are. But consider this, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. And this is God's work. If you don't accept the humiliation of it, you cannot accept the grace of it. And this is the incredible thing about Stephen's death here. You know, as, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking like, okay, I don't, probably none of us are going to be martyred. Maybe, maybe somebody here will be, but it doesn't seem likely. And so if, if not, what is there that's, that we actually have to learn from his death? Can we learn anything about how we are to live from the way that Stephen died? And I think, um, I think the answer is yes, of course. Uh, and I believe it's in the fact that you are going to die the way that you live. That makes sense, right? I will die the way that you live. If you live trying to avoid reality and avoid hard truths, you'll probably die trying to do the same. If you live angry, at everyone around you, you probably will die that way. If you live with bitterness, you will die bitter. So how should I live in order to die the way that Stephen died? Stephen died with a confident hope in his Savior. He knew the love of God. And even in his last moments before his death, God was right there comforting him. Stephen trusted what God had done for him through Christ. He was not trusting in himself. So my question for you today, do you know the love of God? Stephen did, and he was filled with conviction and faith as a result. And I want you to notice something else about Stephen, and it's the same thing you notice when you look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that that is his weakness, his humiliation. Remember, chapter 6 says that Stephen was full of grace and power. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. This is not a man who needed to appear weak before anybody. And yet, he takes time to try and explain himself and convince these men who want him dead. They've accused him unjustly. They've not listened to him. And he takes the time to explain himself. He patiently tries to explain himself to people who had unfairly accused him of something he hadn't done. Jesus also was not a man who needed to appear weak before anyone. So why did he do it? For God so loved the world. So do you want to love others? Do you want to carry this gospel to Bloomington? Then show the weakness and humility of Stephen in doing it. You remember the, the game, the children's game, Limbo? Right? I've been thinking a lot about the phrase, how low can you go? I think it's a good analogy for the Christian life. We spend so much time trying to show others that we are strong, that we have it together, but this is not actually Christ's method of evangelizing the nations. Some of you uh, remember, or many, most of you remember who Bob Kaplowitz was. He was a man 
uh, quadriplegic. He couldn't use his legs or his hands. He had cerebral palsy. And he passed away this past January. And I, I, I'm just, it's always amazing to me how God used that man. He, he was born into a, a wealthy, well-to-do family on the East Coast, a Jewish family. And uh, yet God struck him with cerebral palsy. So he was weak his whole life. His whole life, he had a, other people had to do things for him. And yet God called him to himself, gave him faith, and then for the whole, his whole life, he served others by allowing them to serve him. It's amazing, amazing that God used that weakness In the, in the lives of so many men. And so if we want to live, to learn how to live, uh, as we consider the death of Stephen, we should be determined to be weak so that God will show His power. Now, I want us to notice something else before we get to the end. When the people who Moses was leading gave up on him, they said, we don't know what happened to this guy, right? It's kind of a funny thing to say. Where'd this guy go? I don't know. Um, When the people gave up on Moses, they turned to idols. They turned to idols and they began worshiping the gods of the nations. The the host of heaven is what it says. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what happens when we turn away from worshiping God and listening to his prophets. We worship false gods. We worship idols. And remember, the, the issue here is not whether you will worship something. You will worship. We are made to worship. This is what we do. Humans do that. We worship. You will worship something. You will either worship the true God or you will worship an idol. And here's the scary part. It says that they were rejoicing in the work of their hands and, and God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. Friends, God is kind. He is patient. But there comes a time when his mercy has run out and God gives you over to the very things that you want so badly. So here's my question to you. What sin are you treasuring? What sin are you hiding and holding on to? What work of your hands do you rejoice in? What is it that you really want? And have you considered the awful possibility that God might actually give it to you? That he could deliver you over to your own lusts and to your temptations. As we know, that whole generation died in the wilderness without seeing the promised land. Do you want to be given over to your sins? If the answer is no, brothers and sisters, then the path forward is the humiliation that God calls us to. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Then give glory to God and look to Jesus Christ for your salvation. Rejoice in the work of His hands. It's humiliating. But do you want to be saved? 
We should expect nothing from God if we hold on to our pride and, and, and uh, refuse his offer of mercy through Jesus Christ. Stephen is not a man who has been babbling nonsense. His punchline is perfectly consistent with everything he had said up to that point. He tells the people that they have rejected their Messiah just like their fathers did. They celebrate the law and they celebrate Moses, but they do not keep the law and they do not honor Moses because they do not honor the one Moses spoke about. And so the people, you can sort of sense the tension in the room is rising, the people are angry, and then something amazing happens. Something amazing. Stephen looks into the sky and sees a vision and he cries out, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. If the crowds were angry before, they now go berserk. They're incensed. The people rise up together, they drag him out of the city, and they kill him. I submit to you today that 2,000 years later, this still makes people angry. It makes Jews angry, it makes Muslims angry, it makes people here in Bloomington angry, atheists who don't even believe in God. It makes them angry. And why? why? What, is, what is it about this message that so troubles people even today? It's because Stephen is saying that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He humbled himself on the cross and rescued us through his own sacrifice. The sacrifices in the temple are no longer necessary because Jesus bore in his body the punishment for our sins. God has rescued us by the work of his hands and not what our hands have done. This is the humiliation that we do not want to accept. But it also, but he, he has also been given all authority and honor and power, and we do not want to submit to that. Jesus is the Son of God who now is at the right hand of the Father. Now. He has been given a name that is above every name. He is greater than the temple, and he will return to judge the nations. We hate the humility of Jesus and the humiliation that that calls us to, and we hate the authority of Jesus and the submission that that calls us to. Authority and humility are not opposite, right? Jesus carried both of them. This is Jesus, and this is Stephen's example. He died trying desperately to, and lovingly to get his brothers and sisters to look to Jesus Christ. Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? This is what Stephen says as he dies. I see the Son of Man in the heavens. Jesus said, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, and he is now at the right hand of the Father. He has authority, and no one can take it from him. And so today, 2022, Bloomington, Indiana, you and I are called to carry both this humility and this authority with us every day. Does God, let me ask you, does God's plan of salvation include Bloomington? Does it include Monroe County? Does it include southern Indiana? 
We are to carry both Christ's humility and his authority with us as we carry the gospel to our neighbors. This is not the same as doing a mic drop on Facebook. Do I have to say that? (laughs) Yes. It means speaking with full conviction to friends and neighbors, but not with pride. Brothers and sisters, not with pride. This is not a mic drop. This is with weakness, with vulnerability. And it will be humiliating. It will be. But do you trust God that He will use your humiliation for His own purposes? Don't be afraid, brothers and sisters. Jesus said in Luke 21, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Now, the book of Acts is really interesting for lots of reasons, of course, but it's amazing because the word continues to go forth even as we go from one calamity to the next, right? It's like, it's amazing. Uh, Stephen's uh, uh, martyrdom, of course. People getting thrown into prison. It's, it's of course, and of course, Jesus' uh, crucifixion looked like a calamity at the time. But God's power was demonstrated through the weakness of the apostles, and God's word continues to go forth. And so let me encourage you with this. I know Bloomington is a tough place to be. I know that. God has called some to himself. There are those who will see when the law comes to them, when you, when you bring the law to them, they will feel the, the crushing weight of it. They will live under that guilt and shame, and they will need relief, just like you and I need relief. And for that, you've been made an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You'll be able to share a cool drink of water with them in a dry and weary land. Do you believe that for Bloomington today? Do you believe that God's power can be demonstrated here through your weakness? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the way that it feeds us and strengthens us. I pray, Father, that you would destroy our pride that it, because it just gets in the way. And I pray that we would be weak so that you will be strong. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.